Hello and welcome in to what is a fireside chat here on the Chirpin' Yotes podcast tonight. Uh, joining me tonight is Grandy. Grandy, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Looking forward to just sitting, chatting some hockey, getting my mind off of work. It's been a long couple weeks there at this. So. I hear you there. And if I sound just a little bit different to everybody, that's because it's Matt hosting tonight instead of Tyler. Tyler's taking a week off. So let's get right into things. Some news today. Andrew Barraway was arrested um, on a couple of different felony charges. Uh, the biggest thing here, strangulation. Um, police re- responded this morning to a 911 uh, where a domestic violence escalated into an assault involving his wife. Andrew Barraway is currently the 5% minority owner of the Coyotes. He sold his majority stake to Alex Morello uh, back in 2019 and really hasn't had a hand in just about anything. Um, he, he's got no say in the day-to-day no say in you know who the GM's going to be, uh, people in the office. Basically, he's he's a 5% shareholder, silent partner in the Coyotes. Um, Grandy, what does this mean for the team? It, it means we're going to have a new 5% minority shareholder here soon. That's the only thing I think it really affects the Coyotes at all. It's really unfortunate timing-wise of how this played out because it's going to look bad for the team but i completely forgot barraway had a five percent interest in the team before the news happened today he invisible he's not a face of the team he's not a spokesman for the team he's never around it's just what he did if it if the reports are accurate and don't or you're innocent until proven guilty but if he did what he did, it, it truly, or if he, if he did what is being reported, it is a truly despicable act. And I want not him, nothing of him to do with this team and really hope he is forced to sell. I can't see a way he's not. So I, I think we're just looking at the end of his tenure here in Arizona. Does, in your mind, does the timing affect anything to do with Tempe or anything like that, Matt? The the biggest issue here might be the good conduct clause with ASU. Um, I think ASU probably recognizes that um, it, he doesn't have any say in what's going on with the team. Um, you know, he's basically just a, a portion of the money that Arizona has to you know go through their day to day stuff. He's he's an investor. He's nothing more than that. Um, it's not the team specifically that went out and you know did something heinous and illegal. Um, it was one man who who's an investor at this point. Um, I personally, I don't want to see another minority owner in this. I I'm really hoping that um, you know following this indefinite ban that the NHL levied on him, uh, or I guess they termed it suspension until further notice. Um, you know, I'm hoping the board of governors gets together and forces a, uh, sale of that 5% that Alex Morello is able to just pick up and continue on like nothing's happened. Um, 
I'd find it hard to believe that this swings anything, um, you know, major as far as voters go, because the voters are are voting on an entire entertainment district. Um, yes, it is a, an issue because the Coyotes Stadium is the focal point of it. However, um, you know, this is Bluebird developing. It's Alex Morello. It is not Andrew Barraway. He has zero stake in the property. He has zero stake in in development. He has zero stake in anything that the Coyotes are trying to do right now. Um, you know, the Morello Group and Bluebird, um, you know, they're, they're separate entities from the Coyotes, from Andrew Barraway. And, and what this is means nothing to... Uh, what Tempe residents will be voting on. No, and the one thing I do think is that the Coyotes can find a way to spin this into good press by saying if ASU wanted us out, this was their opportunity to do so. Because this probably does give them a cause to do so if they want. So I can't imagine that that would be the case. I'm not trying to preach doom here. I'm trying to say that that's a good thing because why it, if they if we stay past this, which I am 95% certain we will. Yeah, that was that was their out. It just shows that uh ASU, the biggest tenant in Tempe is fully behind us. It just helps boost us that much more if they choose to spin it that way. Yeah, I think I I think they can actually get out in front of this a little bit if uh more than just Xavier Gutierrez comes out, but if Alex Morello comes out and says, "Look, we we didn't know this was the type of person Barrowy is. Um, you know, we're completely disgusted by his actions. We're looking at every recourse to um you know, purge him from the organization, obviously in a much more PC way than what I just said there. But uh, if he comes out and, and takes a stance on this type of behavior is not acceptable from anybody within this organization. Um, you know, the organization's deeply saddened, deep, deeply sorry for, you know, what happened. And we'd like to get him out of here and move on. Um, I, I think that goes a long way as well. Um, not not to use a, a poor taste in words here, but cut bait and move on. Yeah, and one final note on this from me. Um, if you are having issues with alcohol, get help. I mean, just get help. It's really simple. There's plenty of people out there that are willing to. You don't have to do it alone. Um, and I don't mean one or two. I mean like a serious problem with alcohol. It's it's really simple. You don't have to get to the level that allegedly happens here. So anyways, that's just my thought. That's everything I gotta say on it. Yeah, I I agree there. Um, obviously, there's extenuating circumstances here that that went into uh, escalating this altercation. Um, you know, I I do hope the best for 
Andrew and his own recovery, uh, his wife, um, I, I do know, or I, I guess I read that they are separated. The only contact they were supposed to have, um, involves their children. So, you know, it's an unfortunate situation for the children as well, but for all involved, um, yeah, I, I hope things ultimately, um, you know, progress for the better for Barraway and that he's able to get this under control for himself. So, but moving on, um, there's been a lot uh, talked about lately with Pride Night jerseys. Some players declining to take warm-ups because they don't want to wear them. Um, you know, everybody's got their own opinions of who they want to support, what they'd like to do. Um, there's, the NHL's got multiple different nights, first responders, military appreciation, hockey fights, cancer, St. Patrick's Day. Um, you know, the, these theme nights are, are a big part of the league. And I think what, what this has kind of opened things up to is more, I don't, what, what do you start doing when you start seeing maybe players from other regions of the world who decide they don't want to wear uh, a jersey supporting the U.S. military. Um, or, you know, you have certain players who feel like they've been oppressed and choose not to wear first responder support jerseys. Um, you start getting into multiple nights where you're going to have players who refuse to wear jerseys. You're going to have teams cancel these events. Um, I think there's ways to make everybody happy in this. Um, but before we get into that, what are your thoughts on, you know, what can the NHL do to kind of correct this before it, it spirals out of control on them? Well, one thing I think, and one of my biggest problems I've had with this whole thing is personally, I respect choice. I may not agree with the choices being made here, but I'll respect your choice to make and your ability to make that choice. But both sides aren't being given the same choice here. If you're going to cancel it for the full team because one or two people don't want to wear it, give the players that want to wear it the chance to wear it and let the others don't. It's just give, give everyone the same Right to a choice is essentially what I want to say there, but I did really like, I saw on Twitter, I did really like one of your ideas. I just don't know how feasible it is from making the Jersey standpoints of have six, seven, eight games a year where players pick their own foundation to support and they wear jerseys honoring that, honoring their own causes. You'll see. So I, so not to to cut in here, that wasn't necessarily supposed to be like their own foundations and their own causes. Um, what the NHL has now, this is supposed to be in reference to what the NHL has now with their, you know, five or six different causes. Maybe if the NHL took, or each team took two nights out of the year um, and players picked which one of those five or six they'd like to wear. Um, either they could do it as a team 
you know, each player could wear it individually. But my thought here is the biggest issue that the NHL would face in terms of doing something like this would be revenue. Um, you know, teams would be spending so much money on having different runs of each jersey made for specific players, for each night, that sort of thing. But think about walking into a team's pro shop. You go, oh, wow, I really like those St. Patrick's Day jerseys. They only have a Clayton Keller jersey, and they only have a blank jersey. And I can't get it personalized without spending, you know, $140 to do so, because at that point it's considered a custom name because they didn't do a run with another name. Well, now if you've got at least four or five different jerseys represented on that warm-up night, you still get your auction off money from those jerseys. But now, instead of just, you know, one jersey with one name on it in the shop, in the team store, you can go, well, we're going to offset some of the cost of, you know, that special run for just these two or three players wanting this one and two or three players wanting this one by picking you know, one player from each of those jerseys and having all of those jerseys made, you know, with, let's say, 10 or 15 of each size as a special run and sold in the team store. And that way you've made enough of those jerseys to bring your cost down for those theme nights that you normally would have. You still have your auctions. And now as fans, we get to walk into a pro store and see a Clayton Keller St. Patrick's Day jersey and a Lawson Kraus Hockey Fights Cancer jersey, and uh, Nick Schmaltz, you know, military appreciation jersey, and so on and so forth. And I think that's more where I was was directing that comment, was I'd like to see players put in a position to basically pick and choose um, from within the league standards their own run of jersey um and that would allow players that want to wear pride night jerseys or you know military jerseys or or whatever it is that they choose in that that moment twice a year to wear them for warm-ups and i i think that kind of alleviates some of the issue um but you know that that gets back to well I don't like this player anymore because they chose to wear this one, chose to wear that one. Uh, unfortunately, there's always going to be people like that. But, you know, let's uh, let's get a step in the right direction. Let's get to where players and teams are at least somewhat unified again, uh, where, you know, six teams out of the league aren't saying, yeah, we're not doing this anymore because of the backlash. And we don't have players like James Reimer, um, you know, the Stahl brothers in Florida, um, Ivan Provorov, you know, they, they've become social pariahs for their choices. And I think it's bad for the NHL. One, one thing I was going to say about the choosing your own foundation is one thing I think would be kind of interesting to see is instead of having themed nights like we have now, which I still find it so funny that one of the only truly protected and mandatory theme nights is St. Patrick's Day. That I that just strikes me as really funny for some reason. Um but one thing I one thing I was thinking to get around it, if it is something that needs to be gotten around, is like I said, have every player 
at the start of the year, pick a pick one foundation, and then that's they wear that every home game for their warm up jerseys. And then at the end of the year, I do like you can, that. I definitely you can do have like that. fifteen to twenty of those worn jerseys that you can auction off. Plus, that player is available in the pro shop in those jerseys, um, and you can see more of what each player's personality and um, in what they support and what they want their charity to be. You can see some stuff like mental health jerseys. You can see some stuff like uh, Gay Pride. You can see all of the stuff. I think it would be no. a great exploration of players and a great way for the players to earn money for uh, something they personally support and the team to earn some money selling those jerseys in the team shop. So in that situation or in that scenario where players get to pick their own charities that they're doing this for, are you are you thinking that the jerseys would still be like very bright, colorful, stand out, you know, or, you know, I, yeah, I, I guess think um, be, I think it would be that's like almost, almost like a player design or would this be something where it would be somewhat uniformed as a team, but each player might get, you know, a large patch on on the jersey somewhere for warm ups that represent a certain cause. Um, so that you can show, you know, kind of unity across the team while still serving a, a charitable purpose. Originally, I liked the idea of a player-designed jersey, but I think the patch idea works better. Just because, as you said, showing the uniformity of we're a team, we're not, we're out there as a team. I like that patch idea. Um, so NHL, if you're listening... Um, you know, these are these are some great A ideas that you guys should be considering. Um, if you guys would like to pay me for them, I I will take millions of dollars for my ideas. And also Grandy I, as well. Grandy would like millions of dollars for his. I'd settle out hundreds of thousands. Don't be modest. We're saving the NHL. <laughs> uh but moving on from the NHL, um, there's been some reports basically of a new rule in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League that is supposed to eliminate fighting from, uh, you know, the Quebec Major Junior League. Uh, it would be very similar to the NCAA rule that's currently in place. Grandy, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so it sounds like this was something that was kind of being worked along during the COVID years as the Quebec government and the QMJHL were working hand-in-hand with, if you're going to get support from us, we need to start seeing some um, action taken on head injuries. And the leading cause of... Oh, I'm OCTE. The leading cause of CTE amongst hockey players has been fighting. It's why you're seeing mostly the goons and the tough guys have it later on. Um, So is this more from, you know, being punched or is this generally, you know, I, I don't know if you're how far into this you got. Is this from typically the takedowns where players are going to the ice, hitting their heads, that sort of thing. Um, uh, what are they more trying to get out of eliminating fighting here? 
from what I've read of CTE, the most common way of getting it is the repeated, repeated blows. Um, for instance, quarterbacks and wide receivers take the most violent hits in football, but rarely get CTE. Whereas offensive and defensive linemen, it is very common in them post in their post playing days. And that's due to the continuous beating that they take. Exactly. And that's where the the fighting comes in. The fighting, I mean, this is bare-fisted, no-gloves fighting that is repeatedly punching. Keep in mind, with the QMJHL, this isn't 25, 26-year-olds fighting each other. This is 15- and 16-year-olds, bare-knuckles, punching other 15 and 16 year olds in the head repeatedly. I completely understand the wanting to get it out of the game at that level. I understand. And I agree with it completely. These are still developing brains. These are still, these, they need to be protected and you're not going to see the physical nature of it going away. If you watch NCAA games, if you watch any of these tournament games, there's been plenty of physical play without the fighting. It hasn't gotten any more dirty since they've taken away the fighting. It's just, there's just no fighting. That's really all there is. That's the only thing that's been changed since the NCAA instituted it is. There is no fighting. It hasn't gotten less physical. It hasn't gotten more dirty. There's just less fighting. And like I said, I'm not saying we have to take it away from the NHL, but taking it away from these leagues where it's kids playing it, I think that is a major, major, major win. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just, you know, we're... We're not just at the point where, well, what are you, what are you trying to change? This is hockey. This is old time. Anymore, that there's so much talent out there to be drafted that nobody that can beat the bricks off of somebody else is going to be drafted just for that. Um, you know, being able to fight and showcase that in juniors, it's not what it used to be. It's not where. You know, you're going to go from, you know, being undrafted and not looked at again because you don't have that edge to, yeah, I might go in the ninth round or 10th round of an old style draft because I've got that physical grit and toughness and I can do just enough on the ice, but they're, they're looking at me for that. Teams aren't looking for that anymore. It's just the, the game's changed. It's all about speed. It's all about skill. I, I think you can get away from that at a young age and and not take it completely out of the league itself. When you say not out of the league itself, you're talking about the NHL, right? Correct. The NHL, yeah. the AHL, pro leagues in general. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm I, fine with it staying out of the NCAA. I'm fine with it out of the CHL in general, not just the Quebec League, which I do think, the other two leagues in the CHL, the WHL and the OHL, will probably follow suit at some point. Um, you know, depending yeah. on how well this is received. And that's and that's the thing is, I think once you start seeing less head injuries come out of the QMJHL than the other two leagues, I think you're going to start seeing the other two leagues 
take a major shift in that direction as well. That's, the other thing is, I don't you know. See it I hard know. though in the U.S. leagues. I, I I agree with you. I I do see it coming out of Canada, but what about the U.S. leagues? The USHL, uh, in particular, you know, is are we going to see a lot of the same there, or do you think they're going to continue to to go along doing things the way they do? I I think you'll see it start to come out of there, especially with it already out of the NCAA. I think you're going to see it come out of the USHL too. I don't think it's going to leave the AHL. I think it's always going to be there because and. That's where a lot of these fighter types do end up for most of their career is the AHL. Well, and you're still a pro league there. Um, you know, pro leagues, I, I don't really but, have a problem with it. But yeah, I don't think I don't think if it works in the QMJHL, which again the biggest thing they're gonna be tracking is brain injuries out of it. If it works, if it does reduce it, I think you're gonna start seeing it take hold. Yeah, I think you could even see it go over to Europe and take hold over there in their junior leagues. Um, but also, I don't know if you've ever... I know you probably have, but I've watched plenty of CHL fight or games in my, in my life, and I've seen maybe two fights at that level. It just isn't something that happens very often at that level in the first place. No, so, it's definitely worked its way more towards a skill league. Um that's kind of more you don't see it amongst the younger players i guess um you start seeing it in the overagers the 19 the 20 year olds typically they're undrafted um you know they're they're the players that might have aspirations for like an echl contract or something along those lines where they're just kind of trying to to make a name for themselves maybe keep themselves in the spotlight just a little bit um, now, all of this said, I'm not an expert on CTE. You're not a medical professional either. Nope, not um, at all. Just This is all just stuff I've read. As simple as that. So, do you know offhand how long it would take to, before we start seeing some results of this experiment, as far as brain injuries? I, I do know, in a lot of cases, these things are onset later in life, but they they do kind of come out early, um, occasionally. So are we looking at a 15-year, a 20-year timeline before we find out if this actually has any benefit to preventing CTE? Or do you know if there's ways of early detection and things like that that we might actually know within a year or two if this is making a difference? Aside from the actual concussions, and those can come from anything. Those can even come from those come from big hits. But again, well, there's a lot of concussions and fights. But aside from those, I don't think there is any real way to track yet. And I could be completely wrong there. Like I said, this is just articles I've been reading on the last couple weeks. Then that's really all the research I've done into it is. A couple weeks, or since I've read about it taking place in the QMJHL, and I did a little bit of research into it uh, two years ago when we covered on pod if the NHL should look at discontinuing fighting. Um, so, aside, so aside from the concussions, yeah, I don't know. 
I, I just don't know, and I'm not going to try to mislead people on that. Well, there you go, guys. Um, Grandy and I, neither of us are doctors, but we both did stay at a Holiday Inn last night, so we we can talk on it just a little bit. All right, moving on. Um, before we get into any coyotes or draft-related stuff, um, about a week ago, the IIHF came out and prohibited, basically prohibited Russia and Belarusian players from World Championships and the WJC. They cited uh, potential threat and security issues um, amongst the events, not just specific players. The way I read into this is it may not have been so well received. Um, you know, last year when the IIHF said, no, we don't want Russia involved after the war with Ukraine started, um, you know, we're not, we're not letting them come over, we're not letting them play they got to stay home do you feel like this is the iihf coming out and basically saying we don't want russia and belarusian players here we understand that some of them are kids so we're going to look for a reason that you know could be taken as a a, a serious probable reason or a realistic reason or do you actually think that this is something with some base behind it that, you know, these players could potentially put targets on these events and become dangerous for other players, uh, you know, even kids just playing from, you know, Team Canada, Team USA, you know, Austria, et cetera, et cetera, out of Europe, um, you know, all together in these events, you know, do they create a target for somebody who's extreme and hates Russia that much. So the thing with this is I think this is the IIHF trying to save face after it was clear that banning the players really only benefited Putin in his desire of keeping players in Russia. But I also think I also think that there is some degree of truth to that. I don't know if you remember, but shortly after the war broke out in the Ukraine, Dan Milstein, who himself is Ukrainian, came out and asked that his Russian players please stop sending threats to them. Please stop um, sending death threats to them because they have no control over this. They have nothing to do with this. And they live in what is essentially a dictator state. They can't exactly speak out against the war or Putin and want their and have their family safe. It's just not something you can do. We've seen it happen with Panarin, where he had to take off a month and a half because of issues in Russia, because he does openly speak out against Putin. Yeah, we just saw something with Kaprasov uh, over the summer. There, there was a concern that he wasn't going to make it back over for the start of the season uh, because of his age and the mandatory military service and that sort of thing. So the, the Russian dictatorship threat is definitely very real. Yeah, I think, I think while the, the IIHF is doing this in the tr attempt to save face, I do think that there is some validity to the, to the threat levels 
especially directed towards Russian and Belarusian players who, again, are not part of the Russian government or the Belarusian government and are just here to play a game. It's just... It it baffles me that we want to point at these guys and punish them for what their country is doing when they have zero control over it. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's unfortunate, too, because we've seen former players like Dominic Hoshik speak out against the NHL for allowing Russian players to continue to play in the NHL. So it it's not just... Uh, you know, a, a couple people here or there that are, you know, so politically tied up in what's going on over there. Um, there actually is a, a large majority. Uh, I shouldn't call it a majority, but a growing minority of people that are against Russian players playing in the NHL right now and against Russian national teams playing in tournaments against players from the NHL or kids from Team Canada, Team USA. And, but with the Dominic Hasek thing too, I think that's a little different because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't he essentially grow up in Soviet-controlled land? He did. So I can, I can completely understand where he's coming from because it could not have been easy growing up like that. It's, no, but would I, be I'm real yeah, easy to, to view to view Russians in general as villains. I mean, during the Cold War, our country essentially did. Russians were the evil boogeymen. Sure, but the opposite to that would be that Dominic Hasek grew up in that type of environment, and of all people, he should understand the implications of speaking out against that type of dictatorship and against that type of government. And that the Russian players that are here aren't necessarily in agreement with what's going on in the war over there. In fact, most of them are here as permanent residents at this point. They don't even return during the off season. So I think there's got to be there's got to be some neutral ground where you know I get the yeah Alex Ovechkin should probably take his photo down of him and Putin. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's got to speak out against Putin, but if he changes that photo to a picture of him hoisting the Stanley Cup, I'm good or with it. Or a photo he of him and his son. Right. He doesn't have to change it to a blue and yellow flag. Uh, you know, that we don't need to see that Russian players are supporting the Ukraine or speaking out against Russia. I just... In that one scenario, that's where maybe, maybe if you're Ovechkin, you've got to kind of consider, you know, maybe I can go with something a little more neutral here. I don't have to look like I'm supporting this guy. And I, I think that would probably get rid of a lot of the angst that there is for Russian players in the United States right now. I agree with that. I think Ovechkin is the one that makes this really difficult because he has been close friends with Putin and they do so much together. And he, as you said, he has a photo of that as it's his what Instagram profile picture. I think so. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, it's, it would be real 
if I was a Ukrainian player in the league, and I don't know if there is any, but I would have a real hard time playing against Sylvetchkin with that without wanting to, uh, well, maybe hit him I, a little bit harder than most. I will say I, I do believe that his statements were genuine when people attacked him for having that photo, and he came out and basically said, it doesn't matter what countries are involved there's no reason for war we need to stop this war um i i do believe those were genuine comments and i i do think he did so in a pc way where uh, putin's not going to look at it and go that he's now all of a sudden against russia and you know because ovechkin does seem like the type that when his playing days are over he may decide to go back to russia um you know that might still be home for him and for his wife so you know we'll see what happens there but in one thing on this too, sure. We've also seen proof of people attacking Alexander Ovechkin's son on this. Hasek yeah. being one of them. Hasek being one of them. And there is no zero need for that in any circumstance. And so much of this just comes down to at the end of the day, we all have to remember we're all human we all share the same earth we all they play hockey in our country let's just be kind to each other sometimes not everything has to be a it's their fault just they're they're not guilty by association is what i'm trying to say i guess yeah leave them out of it absolutely Absolutely agree. Um, um, I guess the last, we... the last oh. thought on this for me would be, um, this is the IIHF coming out and doing this. If we got into a World Cup of Hockey, which Connor McDavid brought up, you know, we're not seeing the best on best on best type situations because of the way the NHL is structured now. Um, do you think we see a Team Russia involved in that i think you see the team roc like you saw at the olympics at the olympics the yeah athletes of russia yeah the athletes of russia where russia isn't getting the praise where the athletes are the ones generating it and look let's be real they're still doing it out of national pride because of course they are but this way you can still get the best on best. Again, holding them out of these tournaments doesn't do anything to end the war in Ukraine. It doesn't do anything to prevent the damage that's already done. It's not going to do anything to stop the damage that's going to happen. It's empty, performative stuff that is really only affecting people that, again, outside of a few examples, are completely innocent in this. Let them play. Let them play. And let's have a true best-on-best. Because, you, as you said, you can't have a true best-on-best if you're going to cut one of the top, what, four or five hockey-producing countries in the world out of it. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. 
Um, continuing in the best on best, uh, tonight we saw Clayton Keller and Nathan McKinnon head to head. Um, Coyotes lose 3 1, but Clayton Keller scores yet another goal. Uh, he's up to 35. He's tied Redeem Verbata uh, for the most goals since the 2011 2012 season. And we've still got nine games to go. There's a real chance for 40 goals. There's a very real chance for Clayton Keller to hit uh, 87 points and break Keith Kachuk's uh, modern Coyotes franchise record for points in a season. Ironically, he did so at the age of 24 as well, uh, with 52 goals and 34 assists. Does he do it? I'm going to say yes. I look at... Let's be really frank here for a second. Tonight, the Coyotes got outclassed in just about every way, yet that line still managed to have moments to shine. Still looked like they were pretty good out there. Still held their own. Still got chances and still got a point. It's been our really only consistent point-producing line over the last month. Um, and Keller is the driving force of that. I think you're still going to see him score a point per game at, or at that pace. He might miss a game because he's on a hell of a streak. It's bound to happen soon. Yeah. I I think he's Um, on an 11 game point streak with a goal tonight. Yep. 11 games, which is, I think the third longest point streak in the Coyotes history. And I think they included jets in that too. No, I don't. I, that. I don't know. I don't know that they would include Jets in there. That, I, you know, we're talking about an era where scoring was ridiculous. Games were ending seven six on a nightly basis. You kind of got a feeling that there were probably quite a few guys. Tamu Solani was there. You know, he had a a seventy six goal, one hundred thirty two point season. I would have to imagine he's one of the guys. Keith Kachuk had some great years. Shane Doan had some great years. Uh, you know. Uh, Howard Chuck, uh, Dale Howard Chuck, yeah, Dale Howard Chuck, um, as well, and uh, Randy Carlisle, actually, the defenseman who was coach for Anaheim, he had a couple of very high scoring seasons, uh, as a defenseman in Winnipeg. So, I'm assuming it's probably a Coyotes thing, but I could be wrong there. But that, you know, I of itself, 11 games is, is still quite a streak. It doesn't happen very often. So I just looked up the tweet as you were talking. It is the longest in Coyotes history. So wow. and it's since 96, 97. Tied with Shane Doan in 08 and Jeremy Roenick in 99. That's unbelievable. He's just, he's been unreal this year, and he's been on a different level ever since, I want to say, the All-Star break, but it started shortly before the All-Star break. He looked, he's looked like a different player since January 1st, just completely controlling the game. And once Hayton got put on that line, it was like, that line had its missing piece. Let's the it rolled. It clicked. It just it exploded. I think he's going to do it, and I think he's going to push for ninety. 
that's what I'm really watching for is to see if he can get to 90. Yeah. Going back to the all-star break, um, Keller's played, uh, 22 games, 23 games now, I think since then he's got 38 points, uh, 17 goals, 21 assists in that time. Um, he's only gone two games without a point in that 23 game stretch. Um, that's that's something that he hasn't done at all in his career and that most guys won't ever do in their career. Um, the, the scary thing about that, though, um, he's got five three-point games in that time that he's only got two games with no points. More than double the number of no-point games, he has three-pointers. So uh, the the pace that he's on right now, um, if you took it over a full season, puts him somewhere in the neighborhood of 140 points and around 64 goals. Um, that's uh, the only person on that pace in the NHL right now is Connor McDavid. Um, Nathan McKinnon did move ahead of him in points since the All-Star break tonight. Um, coming in, McKinnon was, I think, a point behind um, he got two points tonight. I think the abs have played like one game less or, or something like that. So in terms of points per game, since the all-star break, Clayton Keller's still third. And we're talking about being third in points per game and points total over the course of more than a quarter of the, the season. Um, that's something that we haven't seen a coyote do in, I, I can't say I, I ever remember it. I don't think Keith Kachuk's. 86 point season had a stretch like this. Um, what he's doing right now is unbelievable. Um, if you if you take away the the 38 points um, over the the 23 games or so right now, um, he was nine points or ten points shy of of or I'm sorry, yeah, nine or ten points shy of being a point per game player at the 50 game mark. I think he had 41 points in 50 games, and he's he's got the potential to finish with 90. That's unreal. Um, the the jump that he's taken under Andre Ternier has been unbelievable. Um, all of that said, I I'm not trying to pump the brakes on 90, but the Coyotes' schedule gets considerably harder the rest of the way. I think they've only got maybe three games left against non-playoff teams. Um, I think they've got one against San Jose, one against Anaheim, and one against Vancouver, if I remember right. Otherwise, they've still got a couple of games against Colorado and Edmonton. They've got three games against Seattle. Um, I want to say maybe one more against Dallas. So I I do think 87 is... I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion that he gets there because that's eight points in nine games. On the pace that he's on, yeah, he should. He absolutely should. The one I'm a lot more intrigued about, though, because he's scoring goals at a an unbelievable rate right now, nearly uh, 0.8 goals per game since the All-Star break. Does he get five over the final nine games and become the first 40-goal scorer for the Coyotes since 1996 when Keith Kachuk did it? That's really tough. I, uh, I've gone back and forth on this one myself so many times. I'm going to say yes, 
because for the same reason I think he has a chance of pushing 90, I think that game against Vancouver and Anaheim both could be tight, close wins where you see a goalie get pulled, and I think you're going to see players feed Keller hard during that point. So you're Um, thinking the empty netters could potentially be his way into, um, you know, basically hitting his 40 goals. Yeah, I do. I can see that. I can see that happening. I think, like I said, I think there's really only two games left, but if he gets one of those, that's four goals over the rest of the eight games. And as we saw tonight, he's scoring at such a ridiculous rate. It's not even funny. Like I said, the Coyotes got outclassed pretty roughly all night long, and he still looked good. He still got his chances. Yeah, I can't say that I've got any worry about Keller moving forward. Um, This this is one of those things that makes me really happy looking back going, you know, I'm glad I was one of those people that that stood by and defended the fact that Chaika gave him the deal he did when he did. Because there were a lot of people saying, well, they should have given him a, a three-year bridge deal at $5 million. That three-year bridge deal would be ending right now. What do you think <laughs> they'd have to pay Keller after this season if John Chaika didn't pull the trigger and sign him at 8 by 7 You're looking at least at 9.5, if not in the double digits, at least. Just looking at comparable contracts around the league, comparable seasons, you're looking at least at 9.5 to 10. And that's on the small side. That's if he, yeah. With the cap going up, you could easily see that get closer to 11 than 9. Yeah, and if we're staying in the hypothetical machine here, Keller would be, uh, he'd have one more year of RFA left after this season. Um, A qualifying offer after a 3 by 5 deal would come in at roughly 7.5. Um, you know, that's, that's easy if you don't want to, or if you can't come to a long-term agreement, you sign that QO, you walk to free agency and all of a sudden you're potentially an $11 million guy. So what Keller's turned himself into has just been phenomenal and the Coyotes have great value on it. As much flack as Chica deservedly gets. This Keller contract really, really saved us. And it was something... Just like you, I was defending Keller along it because when you look at these great value contracts in the NHL, they almost never start out looking great. Nathan McKinnon was making nine, what was it, 8.5 at a 60 point pace his first two years under that contract. Uh, I actually, I think McKinnon was. I want to say McKinnon was only around 6-3 on his bridge deal. Um, this wasn't, McKinnon for, it wasn't a bridge deal. He's got, he, McKinnon signed a six-year contract off of his um, ELC. Uh, even off the ELC, for some reason, I, I feel like his, his contract was considered one of the best value deals in the NHL for a while. It um, was, because he was... He was he was Nathan McKinnon on that deal. 
but he didn't start out as Nathan McKinnon on that deal. And that was the point I was trying to make his first two years under the contract. He was making 65. And I remember seeing some as fans talk about how he was overpaid and have a little bit of worry about him going forward. Yeah. Early, early on in the contract. That's definitely true. Um, he, uh, he did make an average salary of 6.3 million. That was the contract that he signed, uh, coming out of his ELC. So there, there was some value there, but yeah, when McKinnon signs that, and he, you know, we're talking about what 2016 when he signed that, or 2015 when he signed that. The caps, 71 million, something like that, 72 million. That's the equivalent of giving Keller seven and a half million. Um, and, and that's the other thing that it over six years. That's the other thing that gets forgotten about with the Keller contract is he signed it right before the cap hits a flat cap era. And let's not pretend like the flat cap era is the NHL's fault or the Coyotes' fault. It was COVID's fault. It was 100% because the league had to shut down and have zero fans for a year and a half. Yep. There, was, there was no other reason. If you have that cap raised like normal... Oh, yeah, the deal looks even better. The deal looks even better, exactly. But just these contracts never start looking out great. And that was my point with it, is that those first couple of years of long-term contracts always look a little iffy. But if they're good long-term contracts, at the end of it, when we need this contract to look good, is going to be when it looks like a steal. Yep, I, I definitely agree. I want to say, I want to put it out there, this is the podcast that essentially started with the Battle of Keller Hill where we planted our flag and said, this is it. This podcast will ride and die with Clayton Keller if he doesn't hit as a superstar. Well, we won't hit as a podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, into our last topic of the night, um, there's been some discussion lately, mostly on my part. If I'm really, sure really quick, seen it. really oh, quick, go ahead. I did want to uh, let's. I did want to get to Big Tortilla's question about John Farinacci. Oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. So, so John Farinacci's Harvard got eliminated in the tournament. Do you not a, not a pretty game? Not a pretty game, by the way. I think None they lost eight to one. Yeah, that this tournament's been a little rough for the losing team. In fact, the only close game that I think we've had all tournament was Denver getting eliminated. Yeah, and that's because that team played just incredibly well, and Denver came out looking miserable. But yep, that's 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 another matter. Um, oh, John Farinacci has been a guy a lot of Coyotes fans have had their eye on for the last two, three years because he's looked really good in Harvard. Do you think the Coyotes sign him to his ELC? Do you think he plays some games for Tucson going down the stretch here? Uh, I do think they sign him to his ELC. Um, I'm not sure if he plugs into Tucson this season or not. Um, I, I think they're they're probably looking pretty good for a playoff run right now. Um, especially if 
the coyotes are able to get just a little bit healthier down the stretch and you know we see Dauphin and Imama back in the AHL permanently um it, it kind of makes you wonder what their plan might be there with with him playing in Tucson this year um for those who don't know or didn't know um Ivy League schools declined to give players an extra season of eligibility when they lost a season due to COVID. Um, that was not an NCAA thing. That was an Ivy League school thing. So technically, um, John Farinacci's got one more year of NCAA eligibility, but it sounds like he's going to forego it. Um, and his decision being that he can't go back and play at Harvard. He could transfer to, you know, any Big Ten school or you know, out east and and still play. But yeah, my guess is that the Coyotes are gonna gonna make a pitch to get him signed. They still have his rights until June first. Um whether that ELC happens in the next couple of days or happens, you know, a month or two from now is yet to be seen. Does he go straight to Tucson? Um does he get signed and, you know, his off season just starts now? We don't know. Um you know, I, there's, there's nothing that points in any direction right now, but yeah, I do think the, the Coyotes intention is to get him signed. Yeah. I'd be shocked if he's not signed. He has so much that we've seen in his St. Louis days. And since he's been the Coyotes general manager that Bill Armstrong really likes in a player with his leadership, his character, his defensive game his the way he plays he's just such a good all-around player he looks like he's gonna be a bottom thick with some supporting offense for a long time to come i'm really excited about him um, yeah and i don't see a big risk here in signing him to an elc yes it takes up a contract spot yes there's only so many of those but again like we talked about <laughs> earlier in the show at 22 years old, his ELC is going to be a two-year deal. Um, and and that might be another reason why they let this slide until, um, you know, maybe April or May before they get him signed so that he doesn't burn a year of it playing, you know, 12 games in Tucson this year. Um, would be that you hold off until the end of the season, get him signed so that he's got two full years on his ELC as opposed to just finishing this year off and getting one year next year and then having to make a decision on what to do with him from there. And the other thing that we, that I think needs to be brought up is over the next year, two years, we are going to be looking at Tucson needing a lot of replacements. We got to keep in mind, I know he's become somewhat of a fan favorite, but Carcone is a UFA at the end of this year. He's not guaranteed back. Um, Tucson's going to need somebody to replace that. There's there's a lot of holes in Tucson going forward, and that doesn't even count the guys that are going to be called up for permanent NHL jobs. Essentially, um, yeah, Nathan I mean, it Smith looks like they're losing. Up. Looks like they're losing Victor Soderstrom. I can't imagine a scenario where the Coyotes are going to expect him to start in Tucson next year. I think he's earned his spot. Yeah, and 
one of Nathan Smith or Yan Unique will make this team out of camp next year. I just don't see a way around it. And there's a possibility both of them make the team out of camp next year as uh, bottom six players. That yeah, grinding, def- that grinding with a little bit of offense of capability type guys that you need in the bottom six. Yep, there's a lot to look at this offseason for Armstrong. Um, you know, depending on what contracts maybe he's able to take on and get some value out of. Or if we see another signing like Bukestad where he's trying to flip a player at the deadline, uh, kind of maybe jumpstart their career and, you know, get them going again and get some value for them. Who knows? It might happen to Shane Gostaspare, who's got one assist in his last nine games in Carolina. Um, you know, we talked about how, you know, Arizona fixed his career and he might be on to bigger, better things, but maybe that's just an Arizona thing for him and a system thing for him. So, you know, there's always that possibility too, but that will all get saved for another show a little closer to free agency when we start talking about who the Coyotes bring in and what their roster could look like next season. Speaking of next season, we've got a draft coming up. We've, well, mostly me, uh, have had some, let's call them spirited discussions on Twitter um, about the importance of winning the draft lottery. And if you need to win a draft lottery to compete for a Stanley cup. Um, Grandy, I'd like to get your opinion on this. So here's the thing is, and I'm taking kind of an in-between stance here and I know that, but you do and you don't at the same time. What you need is you need elite talent. You need that top-level talent. You need that Nathan McKinnon. You need that Nikita Kucherov. And I bring those two up very specifically because one was a first overall pick, one was a second-round pick. Um, You can find that elite talent elsewhere in the draft but with the caveat or caveat that it is a lot easier at one of those spots than the other. I mean, if you were to take a team of all first, second and third overall picks and play it against the rest of the draft combined, I think the first third and overall first, second and third overall picks has a pretty good chance outside of the net. Um, to put it in, to put it, if you look at the last several Stanley Cup winners, so you have Colorado, who got Nathan Kinnan, first overall. They got Miko Rantanen, 10th overall. Gabriel Landeskog, second overall. They got Kale McCarr, fourth overall. And Bowen Byram, fourth overall. That's a lot of picks in the top 10, a lot more than we've made so far, which kind of does show you where we're at in the rebuild too. Then you look at Tampa, and despite the fact that they have Victor Hedman and Steven Stamkos, who were both picked, Hedman was third overall and Stamkos was first overall in their draft, they actually have a shocking amount of or a real shocking lack of first round picks in total on their team playing major roles. 
they've excelled finding talent to the rest of the draft. But even with that, Victor Hedman's been one of the best defensemen in the league for years. It is the best two-way defenseman in the NHL. You'd be pretty hard-pressed to say that they're going to win the cup without him. Um, I would make the argument they could win a cup without him considering how many cups they've won and how many times they've gone. And I think that's... This is where all the hearsay gets in because I agree with a lot of what you said. I do agree that if you put the all of the first and second overall picks over the last, you know, 10 years or 12 years on a team and played them against the field, they probably win. Here's the problem with that. The cap won't ever allow that much elite talent to be on one team. So I do think you have to find talent in other places. Um, if, and, and I know there's statistical data to back up that teams with a first or second overall pick on their team win the Stanley cup more often than teams that don't over the last 20 years. Well, here's the caveat to that. Um, Chicago's got three, Pittsburgh's got three, Tampa's got three. That's three of those cups. The Pittsburgh situation is an anomaly. It'll never happen again. Um, Pittsburgh had four picks in the top two over the span of six years. We're not going to see that again. New lottery rules prohibit a team for picking more than twice in a five-year period. So, yes, Pittsburgh won three Stanley Cups. They did it behind Crosby. They did it behind Malkin. They did it behind Marc-Andre Fleury. They're that team, and it's hard to argue with that. Um, So, just real quick. Because I made an instant connection when you brought up Pittsburgh and their four. Does that make New Jersey the new Pittsburgh? Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, granted, they've got three of them. They've got Nico Heischer, they've got Jack Hughes, and they've got Simon Nemich. Um, oh, I forgot that uh, we weren't counting thirds. Oh, no, uh, Hughes was the fourth overall Hughes- anyways. Oh, uh, you're you're talking Hughes defenseman Hughes, not not Jack Hughes. Yeah, Luke Hughes. Okay. Um, yeah, either way, they've got three of them, uh, which is, you know, at this point more than any other team has on their rot. Well, last year, technically, the Avs had three. They had Ryan Murray, but, you know, he was a second overall pick. He only played 37 games for him. Uh, Probably not yeah, had supposed to be in the NHL Eric anymore. Johnson was a first overall pick. That's right, but he was St. Louis' <laughs> first overall pick. If you want to count, Eric, there's a reason I left him off in the first yeah. overall Yeah, in any event, um, New Jersey could be uh, because they do have a considerable amount, um, and they are forward-heavy, but this gets back to, you know, uh, can they keep everybody together under the cap and so on and so forth. They're still waiting on Nimich to come join. Um, they hit on Luke Hughes. They hit on Dawson Mercer. They hit Jesper Brett in the fifth round. Um, they've found some elite talent across multiple levels of the draft. Um, but sticking with the, yes, teams with first and second overall picks win the cup. Um, I know everybody hates them. L.A. 
Drew Doughty was the number two overall pick in 2008. Um, to me, Drew Doughty's not the guy that led the Kings to a Stanley Cup. Uh, the 11th overall selection in 05 was Anze Kopitar. The 13th selection in 03 was Dustin Brown. Um, sprinkled in throughout their draft history uh, and on those teams, fourth round, 95th overall, Alec Martinez. Huge part of their cup runs. Um, second round pick, Slava Voinov. Huge part of their cup runs. Tyler Toffoli, I believe he was like 20... I'm sorry, he was 47th overall. You know, another big part of their cup runs. I I think so these are the, all big. These are all big parts. Granted, but I, are you really saying that they can win the cup without the 30 plus minutes a game Drew Doughty was giving them? Keeping in mind the fact that the teams that they won the cup, they both snuck in as eight seeds. So even dropping two points completely cuts them out of the playoff picture. So, yeah, I I do agree with you there. However, let's say the Kings don't pick second overall. Let's say they pick fourth overall and they take Alex Petrangelo. Do I see a massive, massive, massive drop-off in elite talent? They may not be the same player. Um, But I, I do think in that circumstance where Petrangelo is surrounded by Guys like Alex Martinez, Slava Voinov, Anze Kopitar, Dustin Brown, Tyler Toffoli, um, I think we see a little better version of Petrangelo than we have. And this isn't one of those, well, if you take this player away, they don't win. Yeah, if you say Victor Hedman, you know, has a back injury and he misses two months and he's gone for the playoffs, does Tampa win? Well, maybe not. But the next best defenseman taken in that draft was Ryan Ellis. If Ryan Ellis is the pick instead of um, Victor Hedman, the drop-off is slight. But do I still think Kucherov and Braden Point and Anthony Sorelli um, and Barkley Goudreau and, and all of these key pieces that were a big part of them winning a Stanley Cup, do I think Ryan Ellis is enough to keep them over the hump? Absolutely. I, I as don't good think as it, Ryan, as good as Ryan Ellis is, he's never actually played first pairing minutes in his career. No, he's, but he's never actually been on that top team like Tampa. And additionally, he's played behind Roman Yossi. I mean, he's not going to get power play one time with Roman Yossi no. there. He's not going to be the guy out there in the final two minutes of a game. That they're losing. He's not going to be, you know, uh, he's not going to eat up 28 minutes, and that's that's part of it. But can you really say Ryan Ellis drops off so dramatically from Victor Hedman? I mean, just from a point standpoint, I think their season in 2019, the differential was like 12 points. It wasn't huge. So I that's just I my... Th- I also think you're severely underestimating the difference of impact. And this is, again, I'm a huge Ryan Ellis fan. I love the guy. I think it's tragic. His career got cut short, but I think you're severely underestimating the impact defensively Hedman has versus Ryan Ellis. 
Hedman with his reach, his size, his length, his puck moving, all of the whole package is able to impact the game so well defensively that it's he's just he is a difference maker out there every time he touches the ice. I don't disagree with that at all. I I don't want it to sound like I'm disagreeing. No, I know, and that's that's part of why to use your argument. It's part of why Twitter is such a bad place to have a debate because you can't get across your full point without multiple, multiple tweet threads. And because I understand where you're coming from. I understand where Craig's coming from. And I think you're both right. And I don't even think you both are coming from that different a place because Craig is himself has talked multiple times about the need to hit on the other picks as well, because you can't just have the first and second overall picks. Uh, it's just rebuilds are tricky. Rebuilds are tough. I agree. There, I agree. There is and no, there is no right magic answer to it because you could have the worst record in the league and come out of it with the fourth over, well, not anymore, but the third overall pick. Detroit, I never thought we'd see a team as bad as that Detroit team again. And as good as he is, they got Lucas Raymond out of it. They didn't get Jack Hughes. That would leave, that would leave a sour taste in my mouth. And yeah, just, no, again, I, I agree. coming from a guy who loves Lucas Raymond. I agree, and there, there's definitely a talent difference there. But I, I guess my... So if, if we look at two of the other teams that I, I wanted to bring up here, Chicago being one of them, Chicago's lottery pick is Patrick Kane. Um, they get Jonathan Taves at number three. He might be the best player out of his draft. He didn't go number one overall. To build that team, and you look at where some of the guys came from, Nick Jalmerson, huge part of the cup runs, fourth rounder, 108th overall. Um, Brian Bickle, uh, he was a second round pick, 41st overall. Uh, Brent Seabrook, he was a 14th overall pick. But Corey Crawford, second problem, round. The Duncan problem Keith is, though, was a again, the problem, though, again, is that we're not talking about building the team behind that first overall pick, we're talking about the impact that first overall pick has. As good as that team is, do they win that cup without, do they win any of those cups without Kane? I find that really hard to say yes to. 2010, no. 2010, no. When they played Philly, they don't win that cup without Patrick Kane. Do I believe that they could have won one of their three cups without Patrick Kane? Absolutely. And it's not just so much winning a cup. It's can a team compete for one? And I I do think the answer is yes, because if you go back all the way to 2009, there's only four players drafted in the first two picks since 2009 to win a Stanley Cup. One of them is Victor Hedman. Um, The other three were on Colorado last year. They were Gabe Landeskog, Nathan McKinnon, and Ryan Murray. Um of that group since 2009, Tyler Sagan is the only other player to play for a cup in 2020 when Dallas lost to Tampa. So I don't necessarily think first round talent or I'm sorry, 
first two pick talent gets you to a Stanley Cup. I don't think it necessarily makes you a competitor. I don't necessarily think it's overtly important to land a top two pick. Um, if if you want to look at what actually needs to happen, you need to be able to take the best player in the draft at least once. And I'm not convinced that picking top two is that that pick. Um, going back to 2009, I would say eight out of the 14 drafts, the best player from the draft didn't come out of the first. Uh, it wasn't a lottery pick. And it's easy to go, well, yeah, but that's pretty good odds. Well, if you go back that far, Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Nathan McKinnon, they're easy picks to make. They were clear head and shoulders so, above their class when they got taken. But using, using that exact thing, we're seeing that play out this year, and it really, really looks like we're seeing it play out again next year. Because Macklin Calabrini looks more and more like a surefire, can't miss franchise piece. Every I'm day. not ready to. I'm not ready to to go that far with Macklin yet. And the reason I say that is we've seen, I uh, everybody anointed Alex Lafreniere as being that guy a season and a half ahead. I, and I'm see, not saying he couldn't be better in New York. I I get the he's I, underdeveloped, but there's. The Nolan I understand Patrick what you're thing. saying about Lafreniere, but I also don't. I don't. I don't remember seeing many many people talking about him in that rarefied of an air. It was always this. He's a really good player. He's going to be a strong player. He's going to be a really solid player for a team. But he wasn't. He was talked about more in the Taylor Hall tier of he's a first overall pick but he's not going to be a franchise player than he was a, this guy is going to be a face of a franchise. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, there is something to be said about that, but then we have, I mean, we've had it plenty of times in the past. Players talked about being absolute elite guys, if not franchise guys, I granted the generational talent that we're going to get this year with Connor Bedard. That's a little different, but no, you I'm just I'm just talking about the franchise guys, the sure. franchise guys, the Austin Matthews, the Nathan McKinnons, the Connor McDavid. Sure, but even those, Connor McDavid is a generational. Sure, but those guys are few and far between. To say you need to win the lottery, uh, you're not you're not saying well if you could win the lottery when there's a franchise or generational talent sitting there. Yeah, absolutely, that helps. I'm not arguing that it doesn't help, and I'm not saying that it doesn't shorten the timeline for winning or competing for a Stanley Cup when you've improved your roster, you know, what two guys might do with one pick. That's that's massive for anybody. I don't want it to be misconstrued that, you know, winning the lottery is, it's eh compared to, you know, I don't want people to look at this and go, you're only saying that because Logan Cooley might be the best player out of the last draft. Yeah, that might be true, but there's a big difference between Slavkovsky and Nemich and, you know, Fantilli and Bedard. I, I do see huge, huge value in winning the lottery in a year like this. But let's it's say funny, the Coyotes... Last year, last year let, I wanted the first overall pick to pick Cooley, so... La, well, 
if the Coyotes end up with a first pick last year, I quite honestly think that Slavkovsky being a prototypical Armstrong type guy, that's who the pick probably is. And, oh, yeah. I, and I agree now all of a sudden, well, the Coyotes. Sure. But now all of a sudden it's, well, you, you got lottery luck. You got Slavkovsky. You didn't end up with the best player out of the draft. I mean, that, that's, that's where I'm coming from. It's not necessarily. And, and the other thing to, to keep in mind is lottery luck for the longest time was only one pick all the way up through, I think, 2017. So even, even that said, it's not just lottery players that do it, but it, it really is the best players out of each draft. Um, Kucherov, without question, is the best player out of, what was it, the 2011 draft, I believe, that he came out of. Uh, there, there's nobody close. Uh, could you imagine if they win that draft, or win that, uh, or, I'm sorry, don't win that lottery, but they package, what is it, the the 57th pick or something that they used to take him, and their 27th and something else, and maybe their second round and first round next year, and they move up and they take Ryan Nugent Hopkins at one overall because somehow they manage to make that trade and they never end up drafting Kucherov. Where are they? So I do think that it's far more important to land the best player in drafts or a top five player out of the draft than it actually is to win the lottery because I don't think winning the lottery gets you that player. I think it makes it easier to get an elite player or a so, a guaranteed top six player or a guaranteed just, top four defenseman. But I don't think it does. I don't think it moves the needle quite like hitting on your your picks and having a a draft team and a scout team like what the Coyotes have in Daryl Plendowski um, having a former scout as their GM right now, that goes so much farther for me than actually winning the draft lottery. So let's just play a quick game. And I agree, the scouting does go further. Again, you need more than just hitting on the draft lottery. But hitting on that draft lottery, just it does help so much. Let's just play a quick game here. Owen Power, Maddie Veneers. Are either of those players top five from the 2022 draft right now? I mean, I think they're... Are, are they top five? Yeah. yeah. Right now, I'd have to argue they're one and two. Uh, I, think, really good in I think it's still I think it's still too early to evaluate. I, I do like how Powers has looked, and I, I will agree that, you know, Maddie Veneers looks like he's going to win a Calder relatively easily this year, and he's, he's going to be a top six guy. Uh, for his entire career. But if you're that arguing said, that, if you're arguing that, then it's way too early to even call to say anything about Cooley. Right. But what I'm saying is, right now, would if the consensus amongst people is that right now Cooley looks like one of the best player, looks like he's going to be the best player out of that draft, does winning the lottery mean that you actually end up potentially taking a worse player? Would that lottery luck have turned that's out to some, be a bad thing? That's something that will never be known unless GMBA comes out and says, yes, I would have gone Slavkovsky or Cooley, which 
he's not going to do at any point. No, he, from he never everything would. He's, but from everything he said immediately after the draft, which has to be taken with a massive grain of salt, and I will admit that 100%, Cooley was their number one guy. They wanted that guy that could create for others. They weren't looking for the finisher, or they would have gone with Shane Wright. Sounds very like they had Cooley 1, Shane Wright 2 on their board. Potentially, yeah. But this still comes back to... Yes, we can't go with the last draft or the last two drafts and say these guys were weren't the best out of their draft. But if we go back over the last 15 years, I it's hard to say that the best player out of their draft... Okay, so starting first in... Or second. Starting in 2019, Jack Hughes or Capococco? I mean, well, you have the best player in the draft in Hughes, so I don't even think that needs to be brought up. No, and like I said, I, I, I'm not saying that it, it's not going to happen all the time, um, but if we go... All right, so 2019... 2018, Rosma 20... Stalin, Andrei Zvechnikov. Those are both top five players out of that draft. Yeah, Um Again, we're still a little young. We're we're still we don't have everybody in the or that's made the NHL yet, um, or that's beyond maybe a rookie year. Um, if if we really want to look at this, I I think you have to go 2017 or older, um, just because that puts players in the 23 range, 23 years old or older range. And the reason I say that is because. Occasionally, you'll get players that come out and have a phenomenal start. Um, and, you know, it, it's because they're so far ahead of the curve, but they plateau at, so, you know, being a 65-point guy or a 70-point guy. And then guys that were taken later that developed for three years end up becoming the gems of that draft. So 2017, Nico Heeshear, Nolan Patrick. I'd make the argument his year is a top five player from that draft class. I would yeah, probably argue against Heis- Okay, so you have Heiskanen, Makar, and Pedersen that are above him. I'd uh, put him above Nick Suzuki. See, I, I have a hard time with that. Um, and I, I say that because Nick Suzuki's in a horrible, horrible situation right now. And he's still leading that team. He's still playing... You know, first line center. He's still. He also he's just being asked. Nineteen games with two points scored in that. Well, he's also playing on an AHL team in the NHL right now because half of their roster is hurt. So there's so is, there's so got to be. Keller. So is Michelli. Well, the difference being is Keller's twenty four is opposed to being twenty one. When Keller was twenty one, he was putting up the same numbers that Nick Suzuki is now. Michelli. Michelli's getting to play second line winger. He's playing a sheltered role behind what is one of the better top lines in the NHL right now. And to be fair, those two players are putting up very similar points, but Nick Suzuki's doing it playing in the center role on the first line being the focal point. And ever since Cole Caulfield went down, his point production has died. Yeah, but like I said, this goes back to they've got guys who were, you know, fringe ECHL players to start the year who have made a couple of starts. They they 
should be far worse than they are. I, I don't know how they're above water. Nick Suzuki's got, what, 60 points because or something like that? They have, they have a better defensive core than we do, and that's the only reason, only reason. Sure, but let, let's say Nick Suzuki's got 55 points, 60 points, he's somewhere around there. Cole Caulfield is second on that team right now with 36 points. So and still first in goals. Right, but the disparity between Nick Suzuki and the rest of that team right now, uh, it's unreal. And yes, like you said with Keller, that argument's there that Keller's doing the same thing. However, while Keller's doing that, Keller is four years older than Nick Suzuki. Maybe three years, three to four years older than Nick Suzuki. He's also playing with Nick Schmaltz. He's playing on a power play that had Chikrin and Goss Despair for a good portion of the year. He actually has some talent around him that lets him do what he does. Now, granted, the streak that he's been on recently, something's clicked between him, Keller, and Schmaltz, and all three of them on that line. But yeah, I I would still take, I think, Nick Suzuki in that role. Nico Hishier has played a mostly defensive role. He is their defensive shutdown center and has 30 goals, 38 assists, and 68 points on the air. Yeah. Yeah, like Playing I said. He, excellent big, defense. I would... The big difference is... I don't see is, how you don't take that above Nick Suzuki. The big difference is he's got good defensemen behind him. He's got great wingers playing with him. Even asked to play a two-way game, he still has far more talent around him. He's not the focal point in New Jersey. Uh, you know, it's it's Jack Hughes. Um, additionally, he's getting power play time with real power play guys, with offensive-minded guys. Um, I, I do think... I do think if Nick Suzuki is playing almost anywhere else, uh, he's got 20 more, 25 more points than he does now. He could be in Arizona, and quite honestly, he'd probably have 70 points right now, 75 points. I think there's so, a lot to be said about Nick Suzuki's situation and how much it's hurting his actual production right now. Okay, so last year, Nick Suzuki in 82 games had 21 goals, 40 assists, 61 points. In 70 games, Nico Hishier had 21 goals, 39 assists for 60 points. The year before that, Hishier was hurt most of the year, had 11 points in five games, whereas Suzuki had 41 in 56. The year before that, he had 36 points in 58, whereas Suzuki had 41 in 56. Sure, so, but now, now we're heading the wrong direction here because we're not talking about what guys are capable of doing when they're 18 and 19. We're talking about how good are these players going to be, you know, when they're 25 and you're looking to win a Stanley Cup with them. So, yes, I do agree I would, with where you're going, but... I would take Nico Hishier on a Stanley Cup winning team before I would take Nick Suzuki at this moment in time. That's what if, I'm trying. If that's New what Jersey, I'm trying to say. 
if New Jersey called Montreal tomorrow and said, we'll trade you Nico Heischer for Nick Suzuki, and the trade went through, I think Nick Suzuki is more productive in New Jersey. And more productive? Possibly. Yes. Playing the same role with the same defense and the same defensive zone starts? I highly doubt it. Mm, maybe, but I also think New Jersey's got three very deep lines and a fourth line that's capable of shutting down other teams. I don't necessarily know that... Uh, yeah, maybe maybe as an all-around player, um, he sure is a little better. I think Nick Suzuki's a little better offensively. Um, you know, that one might be a little hard to quantify who's better right there, and- but... And but so four top think... five players were arguing for the fifth player in that draft, though, because Jason Robertson's also in that draft, and he was the second overall pick to get back on t- track. So. Sure. Um, but again, when you're talking about elite talent, uh, how many now, if we're looking at the first two picks in all of these drafts, where do you have Nolan Patrick right now? I mean, he's not oh, a he's top not... 30 no. player in that draft, but he's a lottery pick. So, yeah, I I do think your odds are a little better of landing elite talent, but I still go back to if you're picking in the top 10 or even the top 8, I think your chances of landing elite talent don't drop so considerably that you can't win a Stanley Cup with those picks. Let's play a different game then. Which Coyotes draft pick? Not named Logan Cooley or Dylan Gunther in GMBA's draft have a chance of being a top five player from that draft class. And um, Dylan so Gunther a- might be that on the one outside of that looking in. Which Coyotes draft pick from the last two drafts has a chance of being a top five player aside from Cooley in their respective draft class? From the last two, I, I mean, if you're yeah. shooting shooting from the last two, it's probably Cooley and potentially Gunther. Um, Gunther might be on the outside of that, like you said, but if Logan Cooley is, and let's say Logan Cooley's a top three pick from that draft, but staying within the parameters, a top five pick, you're one for two in landing top five talent in your draft and you didn't have a lottery pick in either one. So, do No, you but you need... did have a top three. And let's be real, the only reason Craig Morgan has left the third, because he's always included that third pick in his conversation in previous years, the only reason he hasn't included it this year is as it stands right now, we have zero shot at drafting third overall. Sure, but when you're talking about what a lottery pick means and do you need to win the lottery, no. I I don't think it's but, even 50-50 that you need to win a lottery to compete for a cup, and I guess that's that's more what my point is. My point is you have to land top talent. And in a draft like this year where, let's say, yeah, you don't win the lottery – um, you don't end up getting your choice of Bedard or Fantilli, and you're stuck taking somebody at seven. Um, you know, you you're still in a draft this deep, uh, unless you're 
somehow taking the reincarnation of Dylan Strom or Pavel Zaka in this year's draft, you're going to land somebody elite in that top 10. Um, I don't think you need you're going to land lottery. somebody elite, but you're not going to land that franchise talent that you would picking in the top, the top two. No, but do I'd I say think... three, but I also know you don't like Lou, uh, Leo Carlson as much as I do. Sure. And I agree with you. I, I, you're probably not getting a franchise guy like Fantillion. You're not getting a generational guy like Bedard. Do I think that I will say four you years have a chance. from now, you do have a chance I... of drafting a top five player in this draft class with sure. that pick. Sure. And do I think that four years from now, the Coyotes couldn't have a core built around Logan Cooley, Clayton Keller, and whoever they take at seven this year, in addition to some of their previous picks, including Dylan Gunther and Matthias Michelli, and whoever they might take next year, who, you know, might end up being tenth or eleventh overall, depending on how they do, and they grab a defenseman or two. Do I think they can compete for a cup with a roster built on players like that? Absolutely. And do I think other teams can? Yeah, Boston's done it. In fact, Boston's only first-round pick on their roster this year is Taylor Hall. And he's sure as hell not the reason Boston's doing what they're doing. St. Louis, when they won a cup, they didn't have a single first-round pick on their roster. Their best player was 34th first overall, Ryan O'Reilly. Oh, I'm sorry, first, uh, first overall. overall. You, kept, yes. you were saying first-round pick, and I was yeah, I, sorry, struggling not, with that. Not first-round pick, first overall. Their best player was 34th overall, Ryan O'Reilly. Um, you know, their their highest pick on that roster was 5th overall, Braden Shen. They got Tarasenko so, at 15. Um, you know, that, So are you okay being the Blues, competing for the cut once, but let's say we don't actually win it that year. We just compete for it. And then fading away into mediocrity for the entire rest of your run, which is where the Blues have been outside of that one year. Would I be okay with being the Blues? No. Would I be okay with being the Bruins, who are in it every single year? Absolutely. I, there's, there's two sides to that coin. It's not just good and not just bad. So, yeah, I, I do think there's... I do think there's a lot to be said about winning a first round pick. Do I want to be San Jose who, you know, San Jose played for what two cups they've made multiple trips to the Western conference finals. They never had a first round pick. It's unfortunate that they never won a Stanley cup. Do I think they could have won a Stanley cup if they didn't play a Pittsburgh team who had four first or second overall picks on their team. In addition to Phil Kessel, who I think was a, a fifth round pick by Boston or even a third round pick by Boston. And you know, who had a, a hall of fame goaltender. Do I think San Jose could have won a cup? Absolutely. Is the difference that Pittsburgh had those players? Yeah, it is. Will that ever happen again? No, it won't. So do I think it's an anomaly that San Jose didn't win a cup? No, it's probably not an anomaly, but do I think they were a competitive team for a very long time that probably should have won a cup? Yes. And would I be happy if the Coyotes reached that level of talent that San Jose had without 
winning a lottery, yeah, I'd absolutely be happy. I'd be watching competitive hockey. And at some point, the numbers will likely fall in your favor if you play in a Western Conference Finals five or six times over a eight-year period. Um, you're going to go to a Stanley Cup. And if you go to two or three of them, you probably come away with one unless somehow the Buffalo Bills are playing hockey. How many times in the last 10 years have the Boston Bruins made it past the second round of the playoffs? Yeah, that's fair. But how many times in the last 10 years has, has Toronto? And they've got multiple you know, pieces that are one generational. Mitch Marner's fringe on that. John Tavares was a first-round pick. It doesn't mean that that those picks get you there. No, it doesn't. But again, that's not the argument. The argument is that it's the easiest place to find that player. It's the easiest place to find that. Sure. Are you going I, to find I don't disagree with that. Tenure or his career by these couple of years? No, but there's a lot to be said about the fact that he's in the middle of his prime, similar to Connor McDavid, and McDavid's been beyond the first round twice, and Matthews hasn't been beyond the first round yet. I I'm not saying that it's not easier to find that talent through the lottery. That was never I that never was something I said. What no, I meant by the all of this is, is, that, is the but the biggest problem that you have is that is the crux of the argument is that that is the easiest place to find the argument. So if you're not going to approach this argument from that mindset, it's going to lead to, well, how the argument went essentially. Well, yeah, but I, I, so I don't really care how the argument went, I guess. In, when it comes to, does the opinion have any validity that you can compete for a Stanley Cup without a lottery pick, I think really what it comes down to is how good are you at drafting and developing? If you're the New York Rangers, you can pick in the lottery four times or five times, and you might be screwed because you you don't scout well, you can't draft and develop guys the way the rest of the league can. Or you could be... You know, and I hate to say this because I I never thought this about Ottawa, but if you go back and you look at at Tim Stutzla and Jake Sanderson going at three and five, um, they might be the two best picks out of twenty twenty, and they went at three and five, and both of them went to Ottawa. So I think Byfield. I think Byfield is slowly climbing back up there. But, he is, but he's not, no, not, but he's not Tim Stutzla putting up 30-plus goals and 80 points right now, and, and Jake Sanderson's having an unbelievable rookie year as a defenseman. So, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, it might be the easiest place to find those guys, but the reality but, is you have to be good at recognizing who that guy that should talent, actually be. Where has that talent gotten? Ottawa. Well, that talent's only been in the league for a year and a half, so the jury's still out on that. But that goes back to what you brought up about, you know, we don't know what the Coyotes would have done. Would Armstrong still have taken Cooley at one? Well, if he does still take Cooley at one, that's because the team put in the work in scouting. They didn't 
just win the lottery and get the best player. They scouted, drafted, and are developing the best player. And I think that has way more merit than, yeah, we're getting to pick first or second, we're automatically going to get an elite player. Because I don't, I don't think it works that way, and I don't think that that's that calling it the easy way is the way to win a cup because nobody ever won a cup taking the easy road. No, because again, you need to surround those players. The Edmonton Oilers were handed the easiest road any team has ever had with the best player since Wayne Gretzky. And they've completely squandered it by missing on every single other pick aside from Leon Dreisaitl, who is another best player from his draft. They, I mean, it again, it comes down to building the team around them, but you need that game-breaking talent. You can't win without that game-breaking talent. Whether it's Patrice Bergeron in his insanely elite two-way play, which, again, he was a second-round pick. Yeah, it's possible to find these aside from there. It's just, um, it's just. Yeah, I guess we'll see. The easiest way, and it's worth keeping in mind that the cap era started in two thousand four, and a lot of the teams that ended up with first round picks did so between, or I I should say that have won Stanley Cups with first round picks did so picking in the first couple of years after the cap era started when teams were restructuring and learning how to build and work within the cap rules. So we'll see how things unfold, but no, I, and I, I think it's, I think it's like just real quick. I know we're trying yeah. to wrap things up, but it's like how everybody kept saying you can't win in the NFL with a quarterback making 40 plus million a year. Well, the Chiefs just went and did that. There's a first, th- Teams will break the mold. It's, yeah. Again, it just comes down to the ease of it and the, the best, the easiest ways to find that talent. The difference between Patrick Mahomes and Connor McDavid is that Connor McDavid will play less than 40% of a game. And whereas, and yeah, that's the difference between hockey and any other sport. Again, I'm not. It was more. I was using that as an example of a team breaking a mold that had never been done. Yeah, and more I, so than. And I understand NBA. that. I just don't know that that mold can be broken in the NHL. I, I don't know that there's a team that. I mean, if you look at Edmonton right now, they've got two guys trying to drag them to a Stanley Cup. Nugent Hopkins is over a point per game right now. I am temporarily back. I'm sorry. I had some technical difficulties there. Um, okay, cool. In any event, um, but yeah, before we wrap this up, uh, McDavid and, and Dreisaitl are trying to will a team to the playoffs. Nugent Hopkins would lead 22 other teams in points, but there's nothing else there. Um, you, it's It's so hard to try and break that mold that you know, maybe a Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers or one of those guys could do in another well, sport. Again, it wasn't so much the that particular mold. 
I was just using it as people had been saying for the last five years, you could never win like this. Just like people are saying you can't win without a first overall pick because no team has done it in recent history. Those molds get broken all the time. So that, that was my point there. I get that point. And I, I do think there's something to be said about the quality of that first round pick. I mean, St. Louis did it without it when Washington won. 34-year-old Ovechkin played a, a huge mental part in that, and he scored goals. But Kuznetsov had, like, the eighth-best postseason in the last 40 years, dragging that team all the way to the finals. Uh, those, It's one thing to say you can't win a cup without those first-round picks or those first-overall picks. It's another to make the argument that those players are the only reason that you win cups. And, and I don't think that's true. Fair enough. So, but, um, I'm sure there's some audio in there that we'll have to get trimmed up, but, um, did you have anything else going for this evening? Are we, are we about done there? No, I think we're about done. So, uh, thank you, Matt. As always, it's been a pleasure. Of course. Um, everybody remember, go vote. If you're a Tempe resident, props 301, 302, 303. Uh, for more information on the project, please check out Tempe Wins. Uh, that's Tempe underscore wins. And you can get a, a ton of info from them, some information about what you can do to help the cause. Uh, please remember to... Rate us, review us, follow us on pretty much anywhere you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, um, and tune in next time when Tyler rejoins the show and you don't have to listen to me try and figure out how to host one. <laughs> <laughs>